You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The United States Secretary of State attempts to stop things in the Middle East getting even worse. Former US President Donald Trump in court, though it now seems more like news when he isn't. And the startling success of a pioneering tourism deterrent initiative. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Sir Mark Lowcock and Daniela Pellet, will discuss the day's big stories and we'll find out how Tbilisi is discovering the long-hidden fun side of its Soviet architecture. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Sir Mark Lowcock, a fellow of the Centre of Global Development and by and the former Head of Humanitarian Affairs at the UN. That's a long job description. Uh, and by Daniela Pellad, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, which is a mercifully shorter job description, which was why I was able to say the whole thing in one breath without falling over it. Hello to you both. Well done. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Um, you have both been gadding about the Iberian Peninsula of late. Um, Daniela, first of all, uh, regular listeners will be aware of your predilection for peculiar, out-of-the-way, idiosyncratic museums. I understand that you visited a rock museum. To be clear, this is a museum dedicated to the geological thing, not the musical genre. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, uh, it's, it shares premises with a, a lace museum as well. So there's a rock museum and a lace museum. Yeah, there's something really poetic about that, isn't there? Um, this sounds like they're kind of halfway to some sort of Spanish equivalent of rock, paper, scissors. Yes. There. Oh, I should mention that this was in, in Spain. This is as, as I as I wandered uh, along the Maresme coast in Catalonia. Okay. Did you go there specifically to see the Rock Museum? I, I, I couldn't possibly... If I said that, that would really open me up to so much ridicule, but I'm glad to say I didn't. I, I went on a, 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 a small holiday, although um, current events... Uh, kept on intruding. I mean, well, you know, big as, boo-hoo. But. As, as, as they would. And we will be turning to those current events shortly. Uh, Mark, you were adjacent to Spain. I was. I was in Porto, where I'm ashamed to say I got no further than, I got nowhere beyond the, the, the production of the Douro Valley. <laughs> which, as you know, is port and white wine and red wine, and that's all I remember. Uh, I'm surprised you remember that much. You, you didn't. You didn't visit any idiosyncratic local museums, at least not to the best of your recollection. No rock and no sh- no lace for me. I mean, you, you you might be barred from several of them by now and just not know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, well, we will uh, pivot absolutely seamlessly to events in Gaza. The death toll now from Israel's bombardments of recent weeks is said by local authorities to have cleared five figures, and of that 10,000, at least 4,000 are children. More than 2,000 people are missing, 25,000 more injured, and by the best guesses of the United Nations, more than half the Gaza Strip's 2 million people are displaced, with obviously limited options for relocation. Meanwhile, the United States' efforts to direct events have seen Secretary of State Anthony Blinken shuttling frantically around the region, and the rare public announcement of the deployment to the region of an Ohio 
Ecto-class guided missile submarine. Um, Mark, first of all, to to Anthony Blinken's, uh, well, frantic shuttling, as a former fellow diplomat yourself, uh, how do you think he's probably feeling now, having visited since Friday, uh, as I count it, Israel, Jordan, the West Bank, Iraq and Turkey? Well, a little bit tired, but I think also quite determined. I mean, it's clear that he's had a set of well-defined objectives for this visit. They want to avoid further escalation. They want to get more aid in and they want to sustain relations with um, key countries around the whole region, notwithstanding the fact that the US clearly is full square behind Israel and that has the potential to fray relations. The difficulty that the US has there, I think, Daniela, well, one of the difficulties the US has in being four square behind Israel is trying to figure out where Israel thinks it is going with this. Is it clear to you or indeed anybody possibly up to and including Benjamin Netanyahu what Israel sees as its endgame here? Well, Israel has made its endgame very clear. They're going to destroy Hamas. They're going to make it uh, unable to function as an organisation. But that's all very well. We can all say things like that. Anyone can say what they want. Actually, how they achieve this is um, immeasurably hard to define. What does that mean? That they um, they destroy tunnels or they kill commanders? I mean, all of which they have been doing for a long time. Uh, part of the reason we find ourselves in this appalling situation is that they have been trying to downgrade and limit Hamas capability while at the same time kind of supporting it and facilitating it for for years now. So how they, it's not like they have been working on a strategy for the last decade, the last two decades on how they're going to destroy it and wipe out its capability. They had limited success in the second intifada uh, in the West Bank um, by a system of targeted assassinations and raids and an ability to actually destroy what they would describe as terrorist infrastructure. So that combined with you know, other other movements, you know, the controversial building of, of the wall and so on and so forth, that meant that the Second Intifada ended. But in this case, it's, it's an immeasurably different situation. And as much as Israeli public appetite is sympathetic to um, this military operation, and I think also partly because the Israeli media is not doing a great job of explaining what is happening on the ground in Gaza. Um, the appetite is there and the support from America is there, but the actual um, moment where they can say, oh, mission accomplished, is very hard to imagine. And we also all remember previous examples when leaders have said mission accomplished and really well, it hasn't indeed. been that at all. I th- I think, Andrew, that one of the things they're trying to do in the short term is is basically try to extinguish Hamas, especially from northern Gaza and Gaza City. And Gaza City has now essentially been surrounded. So they've got, a, I think, a, essentially a siege-like game plan. It reminds me a lot of what happened in cities like Mosul in northern Iraq, where hundreds of thousands of soldiers backed by American air power and so on over a period of months... Uh, and that the cost of tens of thousands of civilians' civilians lives eventually expelled Islamic State from Mosul. They then went on to Raqqa to do the same thing. I was in Homs in early 2018 and went to that 
block at the centre of um, the city of Homs in northern Syria, which had basically been smashed to smithereens in a siege lasting weeks and months. It was basically a pile of rubble. And and that ended with uh, the remaining fighters and their families agreeing to be bussed out and sent to another part of opposition-held Syria. So I think that those are the kinds of scenarios that unfortunately that we're confronted with. And the problem is there are still hundreds of thousands of civilians Mm -hmm. in that area basically surrounded now by Israel's armed forces. And how global public opinion will react to the prospect um, of weeks potentially longer than that of these people being besieged and the loss of life that will go go with that, I think is a big question. Uh, just further on that, uh, Daniela, and going back to what you were saying as well about how Israeli media has not necessarily done a terrific job of explaining this, but is there a wider problem that Israel has, I think, quite quickly, if we think back to October 7th, uh, lost control of the narrative here? There, there was obviously a period where I think the world was quite white quite rightly um, aghast uh, and sympathetic at the you know atrocities carried out by Hamas on that date but almost since then while Israel uh, continues to sort of to grieve and rage and not unreasonably um, at what was wrought upon it the the world's attention has been diverted to what is happening in Gaza I think Israel's uh, stance would be well we don't want your sympathy Mm. We we care much less about public opinion. And historically, that has been the case. They want support from their their sort of supporters in Western capitals and so on. They'll do the uh, public diplomacy to whatever extent they can do. And there's been a lot of work on that as well on social media. But certainly, really, from October the 7th, even before the full extent of the the atrocities were um, made apparent, the disinformation, the the anti um, the anti Israel, frankly, movement had begun. Um, there is rife on social media that actually the Israeli army was responsible for killing people. That actually Hamas did not intend to harm civilians. Uh, around the world, uh, as, as supporters of Israel and um, the hostages, post up posters. Mm. Of um, of the refugees demanding for them to be released. I mean, it's uncontroversial. You'd think people are coming down uh, and tearing them down. I saw a, a, a thread on Twitter it, sharing best practice how to do this because apparently the Zionists are hiding um, uh, razor blades. Obviously, behind the posters because this is what the battle has become. So you cannot win this battle for public opinion. You you really can't. Um, and, but and also one other thing is that the Israeli Israeli society has also moved on from this. Um, we have an incredibly right wing government, as we all know. The discourse is so violent. Uh, members of government, senior figures are, 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 are having the freedom to speak in this way, and I think the window has shifted. You know what is acceptable now has 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 really shifted. I mean, just you know, one more uh, point that struck me today. Um, I think it was in 2002, the uh, Hamas commander called Salah Shahada was, uh, his house was bombed in, in Gaza. And I remember mm-hmm. this because it was one of the first stories I, I covered on this subject. 15 members of his family were killed. There was a, an outcry, actually a global outcry. Indeed so. At how awful this was. There was a group of Israeli Air Force reservists who said they would refuse to fly these kinds of missions. That That seems so minimal compared to the level of uh, of bloodshed we're seeing, and that there isn't there. Are, there are voices, but not many voices in Israel. Certainly not in the mainstream, who are disputing what's going on.
And in another example of the same thing you're talking about there, Daniela, in the first 75 years of its history, the United Nations lost on average about two people a year killed of its aid workers killed in these kind of crises. In the last four weeks, the UN has lost 90 people. And this is sending shockwaves, actually, and a lot of distress through the whole system. The, the idea that aid workers should be protected and uh, as should civilians is taking a big dent in this crisis. Uh, just a final quick thought on this. Um, Daniela, the, we've seen a certain amount of fairly obvious uh, theatre from the Americans in the last few weeks, dispatching not one but two carrier strike groups to the Middle East. Um, what to make do you think of this very unusual announcement of the whereabouts of a submarine? The whole point of submarines being usually that nobody can find them. Um, they have revealed with photographs uh, an Ohio-class cruise missile submarine uh, very much parked in the vicinity. Again, is this another message to Hezbollah? I mean, it's it's a pretty strident message, isn't it? And I think that you know that the the, the Americans would say, well, we're we're running around and kind of pepper potting around, speaking to all these people. But our success is not what we've seen to be what's seen to be achieved, but what hasn't happened. Mm. I mean, there hasn't been a regional conflagration yet, and it, it's still we're not out of the danger zone. But you know, that is something of an achievement, and this is just the next in a. Uh, in a series of messages, it's hard to see how a stronger message really could be given. Well, let's move along somewhat, because the wider Israel-Palestine conflict has always possessed a unique ability to command global attention. Even when hostilities have been at a relatively low simmer, enormous wars consuming the armies of several nations have attracted fewer headlines than the Middle East. As things presently are, everyone else, however worthy their cause, is struggling for attention, including Ukraine, which has now taken Russia's three-day lightning conquest into a 21st month. Andre Yermak, chief of staff to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, has briskly suggested that losing interest in Ukraine would be self-indulgent folly. Um, Mark, Yermak's Yermak's thoughts are worth quoting uh, thoroughly. He said, even if there are people who feel this fatigue, I'm sure they don't want to wake up in a world tomorrow where there will be less freedom and less security and the consequences of this to last for decades. Does he have a point there? I think he has a bit of a point, yes. I don't... I mean, it's clear President Putin has been a big beneficiary of the distraction Mm -hmm. and the horrors of what's happened in Gaza. But actually, I think the biggest... The bigger thing that's happened over the last month than that has been the election to the Speaker in the House of Representatives in the Congress of Mike Johnson, the Republican Trumpite from Louisiana, because the thing that's most important to the Ukrainians is the continuing supply of military assistance from the US. There can't be, I don't think, a very long protracted further offensive by the Ukrainians without a constant supply from the US. And if the Congress doesn't vote for that, that will slow down. So the the, the likelihood of a um, kind of protracted, slightly lower volume um, non-freezing but lower volume conflict along roughly the current front lines grows in those circumstances, I think. The Russians, of course, are bigger and richer um, and um, 
if it was just between the Russians and the Ukrainians, that would be a problem for Ukraine. But of course, Ukraine has the whole economic heft of the EU behind it. And while the EU doesn't have the biggest arms industry in the world, it does have a very big economy. Russia's economy may be comparable to the size of Italy. Mm. Europe, much, much bigger than that. And so um, I think the Ukrainians um, will be able to sustain themselves probably indefinitely as long as... Um, European economic support, including from the UK and other non-European members of the European Union, keeps flowing, and they will they will over time build up their own arms industry and defend themselves. They may not be able to reclaim all the territory they'd like back, but nor will they lose. Uh, I want to come back to that thought on Ukraine reclaiming its territory or not. But Daniela, we have also had this recent prank call by. Russian hoaxes to the Prime Minister of Italy, Georgia Maloney, in which she did confess to an amount of general weariness uh, in Europe re the Ukrainian war. Did that? I mean, was there anything especially shocking or surprising or even unreasonable there? I mean, I'm sure everybody does just wish this would stop, but that's not necessarily the same thing as saying we're going to walk away and leave them to it, which in fairness, I don't think she did say. No, that's not what she was saying. I mean, it's shocking because she has been for all her other faults perhaps uh, she has been quite um pretty supportive of of ukraine in this conflict but i mean we've worked extensively in in ukraine and, and right from the beginning of the conflict ukrainian journalists have been saying to me how do we keep people's interest mm-hmm. in this because it's it's this is not unique it's it's not just because you know the israel Hamas war began, but conflict fades from the headlines. And especially in a conflict like this, um, although it's in Europe and although there's been a lot of public interest, I mean, in the earlier days of the war, it's horrible to say this, but as the atrocities are revealed, you know, when you have the mass graves and the evidence of massacres, and that gets the headlines. And now, you know, the fighting has moved on to a different phase. And I'm sure as, as areas are deoccupied, there will be similar atrocities um, discovered but it, it's not headline grabbing anymore and the ukrainians have played an absolute sterling comms game right from the beginning mm-hmm. i mean it's it, you know i'm sure it'll be studied by universities for you know for, for for decades to come and not just in a in a in a mannered way but in a sort of very natural way actually the way that zelensky his walkabouts and his addresses and well, blessed to have been led by a natural communicator i well, think this is it but you know he's a, he was a, he was a comedian mm-hmm. i mean it could, he could have that that could all his jokes could have fallen flat in this in this context but it, it, in so many in so many ways uh you know how do you grab people's attention on the internet with cats well the ukrainians have done that i mean seriously i was in ukraine earlier this year and even though there are any tourists there you know the shops are full of all these products showing soldiers with cats you know they've got the mascot dog mm-hmm. who a patron uh, who you know discovered landmines loads of like loads of like edible patron cookies you know this sort of stuff really does work it works domestically but it also works internationally and um you know but there's a limited lifespan to it uh, on the subject of uh, President Zelensky, Mark, he, he has been reiterating that a negotiated settlement with Russia is not going to be an option. Now, I suppose he has at this point no choice but to say that, given what Ukrainians have sacrificed over the last, well, nearly two years now. But is he right to to stick with this idea of, you know, basically 1991 borders or bust? Well, they have a big choice to make, Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine is one of the countries, I think there's more than 30 democracies next year, which could have elections. Mm-hmm. And he's got to navigate that as well. The 
the issue they'll face is if they are unable to be more successful over the next 12 months than they've been over the last three months on an offensive, what is their game plan then? And and that's a huge political uh, challenge as well as a strategic challenge for them. I mean, it will a lot will depend on what the US, particularly the Congress, decide to do about continuing supply. If the supply dries up, then different choices will be forced onto the table. Uh, Daniela, just finally on this and returning to the theme of communications, one thing... Well, it's a, it's a slight adjustment in Ukraine's rhetoric. From the start, they've been trying to internationalise this, saying that, you know, we are fighting Europe's war for it. We are fighting the West's war for it. And they're not... That's not an outrageous reach, frankly. That is that is pretty much literally what they are doing. But in, in recent weeks, certainly since October 7th, they're trying to frame Hamas, Russia, Iran as basically the same thing, a common enemy against which the West should have a common front. Is that a makeable case, do you think? Well, you could, I think you could make the case. I mean, Iranian drones are, are pretty being used mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Russia and Iran have got really common interests in like remaking the the global um, world order, but I think you do kind of run into um, uh, trouble um, with that analogy. Certainly, if you're saying if Ukraine is saying, "Oh, we're Israel," and then global opinion is seeing that you know this sort of the the horrors that are unfolding in Gaza, that's a little bit problematic. And and similarly, Israel, you know, is making Israel public diplomacy is making that argument, uh, saying. Well, we are we are. They're trying to make the argument, saying we are fighting a, an Islamist, you know, eliminationist ideology. If we don't fight them, then terrorism will come back to will come to Europe, will come to other um, areas outside the Middle East. So I'm not sure that that's a very useful um, argument that actually has impact. Well, let's move along to the lighter side of the news. And former US President Donald Trump is back in the dock today as his civil fraud trial in New York City resumes. While Trump cannot actually end up in the clink on the charges he faces in this one, he appears weirdly determined to test the patience of the judge vis-a-vis contempt of court. The beak has at least once beseeched, not merely asked, beseeched, that's a genuine quote, Trump's learned friends to keep their client under some sort of control. Here is some of what Trump had to burble before court convened. The numbers are much greater than on the financial statement. And we've already proven that. They said mar a is worth $18 million. mar a is worth anywhere from probably 50 to 100 times more than that. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. These are political operatives that I'm going to be dealing with right now. Uh, you have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements, and you'll see some more that came over the wires today. It's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries, and it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it, and they don't like it. There was more where that came from. Um, Mark, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm starting to rather think that if I was Donald Trump's lawyer, I might come down with COVID sometime in the next few hours. Quite a bad case would keep me out of action for a a good few weeks. Well, he doesn't pay his lawyers, so... um, Not enough, certainly. (laughs) And he, he loses lots of them because he doesn't pay the bill. And so I think he is scraping the battle barrel a little bit. I, um... 
I'm not sure his um, election chances for next year are all that much damaged by what's going on, I'm afraid. I actually, a long time before the 2016 election, put £100 on Trump to win at very long odds. And we had a great holiday on the back of it. And I wish I'd lost the money. <laughs> but you can't now get the anything like the odds that we got no. then. He's, in fact, slightly, as of today, in the betting markets in the UK. He's a slight favourite. Um, and I think we're going to have a very, very tense year um, ahead while the Americans decide. And it will be a choice they have between essentially the lesser of two evils. Biden is not popular, um, but nor is Trump. So it'll be one of those turnout elections, I think, where young people will make a huge difference. Uh, I want to come back to recent polling because there has been some, and it is quite startling by which I mean horrifying, but on that thought, Daniela, of the, the not zero prospect that Donald Trump will complete the double of being the Republican nominee for President of the United States and in prison, do you think the United States, the US media, in fact, the world in general is entirely prepared for how very weird this election could get? I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I'm not. And, 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 and the longer answer is no, not at all. Um it's just, it, it is frankly apocalyptic coming on the heels of all the other apocalyptic stuff that, that is going on. I mean, can you just, it's a, it's a sort of mental game, I guess, that we've been playing. Imagine, imagine what it would be like if Trump was president at mm. this moment. I mean, imagine, imagine, imagine the imaginary game. And I'm sure that that has been uh, Netanyahu's calculations as well, not necessarily you know, before uh, October 7th, you know, in the longer term uh, calculations, the world, Trump presidency will be like A-OK for a, me. A thought that may have occurred to Vladimir Putin as well, I suspect. Um, Mark, and again, with all due respect to the fact that we are not Donald Trump's lawyers, I, I, my pr principal interest in this trial is trying to figure out which of the Trump children is most likely to grass everybody up. And I'm, I'm torn between thinking... Either Ivanka deliberately or Eric accidentally. Well, the, the strategy of the lawyers on in all these court cases is to peel away everybody round him. And they're, they're mostly going in the Georgia case for the acolytes egging on the insurrection. The Trump family appear to be a very close family. So peeling away either accidentally or deliberately, <laughs> I think would be a clever trick if you could pull it off. I'm not expecting it. Uh, Daniela, we should talk about these recent polls, which are looking at the six key swing states. Uh, Biden is losing in all of them, uh, not only to Trump, as things stands, but also to Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. The, the question which does then inevitably get raised is, should Joe Biden hang it up um, and hand this one over to somebody possibly half his age or thereabouts. Literally stash his slippers and his, mm. uh, uh, yeah, his, his uh, dressing gown. Uh, well, that would seem logical, right? Since he's 80 and he's, to put it mildly, looking increasingly doddery. And um, the problem is, is, is who, really? Mm. There really isn't a, a natural successor. Um, there might be people, I mean, I, I've been quite a fan of Kamala Harris, but other people aren't. I think um, quite a lot of other. I mean, I tend to agree with you, but I think quite. I think we might be in a minority on this one. Yeah, I, 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 I I'm. If you, the polling that I've seen as well doesn't really give anyone more than a few percent of of popularity. Um, running against Trump, I don't think uh, anyone is is any strategist would say right. Let's go out on a limb and and go for like a super. Uh, a su let's let's have. Uh, 
you know, a super, super reformist and like left-wing candidate. I mean, even Bernie Sanders has said, right, I'm throwing, that's Biden or, or nothing. Come on, guys. But um, I, it, 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 it's an extremely alarming and, and stressful uh, situation because if it's a, if it's a, the, the choosing the least bad of any options, um, how motivated are people going to be to turn out, really? And I would imagine that Trump supporters might have the edge. Well, we have the prospect of, I don't know, a year and a bit uh, to discuss the prospects of the next president of the United States. So we, we will move on to, well... A tourism story. And the many regular, if not nigh obsessive listeners of the Monocle Daily will recall that a while back we contemplated the launch of an unusual new tourism ad campaign by the city of Amsterdam. Rather than the usual encouragement to visit a given place, Amsterdam's was a discouragement, specifically aimed at over-exuberant young British men. It appears to have worked. Visitors to the Netherlands from the UK are down 22% on the last pre-pandemic year, which is good news for Amsterdamers wearied of fishing drunken louts out of the canals, if bad news for whichever luckless European conurbation these tiresome hooligans have descended on since. Um, Mark, were you put off going to Amsterdam by these ads? Um, I'm not in the category that they're trying to get rid of, I hope. (laughs) What what I would say is, um, you know, the uh, hot new movie everybody is talking about in town here is playing just around the corner at the Everyman, uh, just near Midori House, about young teenagers going through rites of passage, drug and alcohol enhance. It's called um, How to Have Sex. Uh, And it gets rave reviews because of brilliant performances, particularly by uh, a young woman lead character. Did someone you know direct this, Mark? No. (laughs) But but it it does get rave reviews, Andrew. And that's set on the Greek island of Malia. Mm -hmm. Young people from this country have been to Magaluf for a long period. My young people, who are now in their 20s, so this is a while ago, they thought the cool places to go were Prague and Budapest because the beer was cheap and the vibe is good. So I think I think Amsterdam can afford to do what they've done and attract others. I'm not sure every other city can get away with it. See, what I'm also wondering, Daniela, is have you then ever been put off going to a place where even if it does have a, an exciting, enticing preponderance of weird local museums, is also famed as a stag-do destination. Because the, the obvious comparison that occurs to me is, is Bratislava, which I've been to a couple of times for the Globesec conference. And it does strike me that the old town of Bratislava operates two entirely parallel economies. There's one for uh, the young men dressed up as whatever young men dress up as on stag-dos. And then there's other venues which go out. I mean, they can't put up signs in the window saying no British people, but they go out of their way to look like the kind of venues that that sort of customer is not going to be interested in. There's there's quite a few really nice bars with lots of open fires and big leather armchairs and leather-bound volumes which serve very expensive wine. Well, I, I'm I'm happy and proud to tell you that I have definitely been to every single local history museum in, in Bratislava's <laughs> old town. I was so transfixed by the wonderful old chemist museum, a bit less so by the torture museum. There's one in every one of these capitals, right? Uh, I did not notice that so much. But as a, um, you know, I, I like to travel and I like to, obviously, I like the places to be sort of there and available for me without any yobs there, certainly not stag do's. No matter the impact on the local economy, but this is a very selfish 
of me. Uh, my son and I are going to Venice in a couple of weeks, mm. and I would l- love and welcome a similar ad campaign, putting all the people who think it's really romantic and want to go and like fix padlocks to bridges or whatever nonsense. I would really love to put them off so we could have the city to ourselves. Well, just finally then, Mark, if, if Danielle is allowed to nominate Venice as the next city which should just run some sort of ad campaign saying, sod off, you're not wanted, yet, would you like to name a city that you think should do the same thing? Well, I'm worried about the overcrowding of Lisbon, one of my favourite cities, <laughs> and if we could dissuade more people going there, that would be terrific. So Mark Lowcock and Daniela Pellard, thanks both for joining us. Finally on today's show, Tbilisi is known for its diverse architecture with medieval city walls and church spires coupled with eye-catching and or eye-watering Soviet-era concrete monoliths. Many of Tbilisi's buildings are tied to the turbulent happenings of the Soviet period and given that tumultuous past, the citizens of Tbilisi are looking to adapt them for the better. Repurposed from a communist publishing house by an acclaimed architectural group, Stamba, is now a hallmark of the city and houses a cafe, a photography museum and more besides. Monocle contributor Maya Sobchuk headed down to the space to find out more. Nestled between the hills of the Caucasus Mountains lies Tbilisi, Georgia's attractive capital city. Georgia is a country with a complex history, given its position at the crossroads of civilizations and proximity to the Silk Road. It is now a representation of what transitioning from a Soviet past to modern Eastern Europe looks like. It would take all the time in the world to describe all Georgia has to offer, and even more to accurately portray this dynamic between past and modernity. If I had to choose one landmark, however, to represent Tbilisi for our audience, I think I would have to choose Stamba. Pinning down what exactly Stamba is, is a feat of its own. The building brings together two hotels, a cafe, a bar, a photography museum, a co-working space, even a chocolatier, and more. To help me answer this, among other questions, I met up with Nino Kronadze, the CEO of the masterminds behind Stamba, the Ajara Group. Even the CEO found it difficult to describe it in one word. She told me that it's a building, a space, a destination, all at once. Initially, Stamba was opened as a hotel, hence its primary historic memory captures it as a hospitality brand with a very vibrant and unique restaurant. However, what Stamba very quickly did is that it extended its reach, encompassing different diversions by opening TPMM, Photography and Multimedia Museum, the shop where we sell items made by our in-house atelier, and very innovative space farm project where we grow and harvest leafy and uh, microgreens within our premise, offering the freshest produce to our guests. You can sense a real effort by its creators to motivate creativity and entrepreneurship through the many hats the building wears. It's much more than a hotel. It's encouraging the development of Georgia. This diversity of functions has created an eclectic mix of creatives, chefs, artists, young professionals, entrepreneurs, even agriculturalists and chocolate makers. On your website, you describe the space as a living, breathing reflection of the city's growing global significance. Can you expand on how Stamba functions as this reflection, as well as how you see Tbilisi's place in the world? As time passes, this definition of Stamba seems to be even more relevant. Um, since what this place does is that it really gathers, attracts, and unites different kinds of people, all kinds of people. Stamba is for everyone, and it has 
definitely become a favorite hangout spot for locals, expats, and tourists. Tbilisi, on the other hand, is a very unique destination with a mixture of diverse Georgian culture, uh, traditional culture, and dynamic young spirit. So Stamba transforms and adapts to whatever needs a modern traveler or guest has. Opening D-Block, our new project, our new co-working space, is also a very good representation of that statement because D-Block gathers people from all backgrounds in one space while fostering their creative efforts and collaboration. But what makes Stamba so striking is its historical dimension. Just like the country it's in, the interaction between its Soviet past and vibrant, trendy present is clear. So the building in which we are currently in was a former publishing house in Georgia. And the word Stamba itself translates to publishing house in Georgian. The building carries a very symbolic and important meaning. It was a place that printed and published magazines, newspapers, and books, therefore played a very important part in the country's socio-political development. Nino tells me most of the original structure is preserved, and some of the interior elements of the publishing house have been repurposed for today. Looking up in the lobby, you can still see the system of drying racks used to hang and dry the newspaper after it was printed, still functional and used on special occasions by the hotel to this day. Repurposing is an inherent part of what Ajara Group does, especially in a country like Georgia, having a very rich culture, preserving history is a matter of pride and uh, consciousness. Also, adding a new layer in of contemporary design touch to already refined historic buildings gives a very appealing end result. That's exactly why we see many different brands embracing this trend. And uh, we're very happy to be trailblazers in that regard. Stamba isn't the only building repurposing Soviet-era artifacts to modern times. Here's Georgi Kandalaki, former member of the Georgian parliament turned historian at Sovlab, a think tank focused on studying Georgia's Soviet past. I asked him to comment on this trend. How do projects like Stamba preserve elements from the building's Soviet use in what they are now? Sometimes uh, some of these projects and even some restaurants in Tbilisi, in particular restaurants, lose sensitivity in the context of celebrating old uses of these buildings and they end, end up uh, celebrating uh, the Soviet totalitarian regime or some of its elements. And I think both of the, the projects uh, we're discussing today did a good job and actually set the standard in preserving things while avoiding uh, any celebratory elements of the Soviet regime. This balance was quite nuanced in the case of, uh, in case of Stamba, as uh, Stamba's building was formerly uh, the HQ of a communist newspaper, the, which was the main newspaper of the Communist Party of Soviet Georgia. Why should travelers coming to Tbilisi take note of the historical element in these places they visit? I think the, uh, the way uh, historical elements were handled uh, in, in this case merit appreciation by travelers because uh, it does good job in uh, stopping short of celebrating Soviet history while actually not demolishing this legacy. And this fits well in the broader architectural context of Tbilisi and makes Tbilisi interesting and contrasts with uh, some of the tasteless post-Soviet developments that have inflicted a lot of damage on the, on the city's urban identity in a distinct way, links up with the earlier pre-Soviet architectural scene of the city, the scene of classicism and Art Nouveau and similar styles with which Tbilisi is plentiful. Stamba is the definition of accessible luxury. 
It is intentionally not overly expensive, particularly places like the restaurant or cafe, which encourages anyone living in Tbilisi to come and interact with the space anytime. Some, like the photography museum and the amphitheater in the sunlit courtyard, are even free. When in Tbilisi, make sure to stop by Stamba, whether staying at one of the hotels as a guest, to have a nice meal or drink at Stamba Cafe, or just to stroll around the property. It won't disappoint. Maya Sobchuk with that report from Tbilisi. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Mark Lowcock and Daniela Pellet. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>